Warriors World Champions. The Anaheim Ducks are the Stanley Cup champions. Pitch swinging. Oh, and first pitch crushing. Oh, man. Lean into it. Zegers here. He can Oh, look at this. Oh, he just Welcome to the Catelicast, the number one podcast, in my opinion, that covers your favorite teams in Anaheim, linked by Catella Avenue, the Anaheim Ducks, and the Los Angeles Angels. I'm your host, Saimiake. Please follow us on Twitter, at Catelicast Show. Again, that's at Catelicast Show, all one word. Uh, please listen, share, download, or review this podcast, five stars only, on all platforms. We're available on Spotify, uh, Apple Podcasts. Google, Amazon Prime, Samsung, TuneIn, Stitcher, you name it, any platform, any podcasting platform out there, we are on it. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start off with the Angels in this episode. I know I started off with the Ducks. Last couple episodes really hasn't been much to talk about with the Anaheim Ducks, so we'll get into the nitty gritty. We'll get into the very surprising series that the Angels have just pulled off in Houston. So they completed the Texas two-step, right? They defeated the Texas Rangers, took three out of four, and then they go into Houston. And so going into this series, I was kind of confused. Were they, did the Angels, did they have a good record because they beat up on two bad teams in Miami and Texas? Or, and then they lost uh, most of their games against Houston because Houston's a great team in Anaheim. But, you know, let's see how, let's see if they can bounce back. And sure enough, uh, they bounced back, which was really surprising for me. I totally thought that they would lose two out of three of the series or even get swept, especially with Mike Trout not playing a single game. So think about this. The Angels just took two out of three against the Houston Astros without Mike Trout. So yes, you could say that they didn't have Jose Altuve in the uh, last two games, but still, I mean, that Houston lineup, even without Altuve, is still pretty stacked. So uh, they lost, they dropped game one, and... I'm not really going to go into too much detail about game one because that's the one they lost. But one thing that I didn't address in the last episode was there's been a lot of complaining about the called strikes against the Angels. And just the umpiring in general against the Angels, uh, I think they've only won one challenge. I don't know how many they've lost, but they've definitely lost more uh, umpire challenges, challenges than they've won. And... I mean, I do have some thoughts about this. Uh, the umpiring against the Angels, for the most part, hasn't been good. But I think part of that is self-inflicted. So a lot of the batters, and I don't know remember if Joe Madden was specifically, but a lot of the batters were complaining about Luis Garcia and his like weird herky-jerky kind of strange delivery that he does, that weird like swing and set that he does. I don't even know how to describe it, but... I mean, it, it's borderline balking sometimes, and then you kind of don't really know if you're the hitter, like when he's going to start into his windup or, or if he's going to step off or something like that. And it can be confusing to the hitter. Uh, I did notice that like someone like Jared Walsh, it felt like he was getting quick pitched a little bit. But you can't really be complaining about the delivery. And I understand that the delivery is very unconventional, and I don't to my knowledge, I don't think there's any other MLB pitcher that really does that same delivery like uh, like Garcia does. I mean, you have some people like Nestor Cortez or even former Angel Hansel Robles who kind of like stop mid-delivery here and there. 
but not as consistent of like a strange uh, herky-jerky motion like Garcia. But you can't you can't be complaining about the pitcher's motion. I mean, that's not the reason why the umpire is is calling strikes on you or why you think that you might be getting squeezed at home plate or why you're not hitting as well. I mean. Pitching deception is a huge part of the game, and if it works for Garcia, he's still going to keep doing that. And if you keep complaining to umpires about really trivial things, that puts a target on your back. And another thing about umpiring that I want to get into, and the Angels, they started to do a little bit of a better job at this the Houston series. It was really apparent in the uh, Texas series, but I didn't really mention it, was that when they, get a th- when they have three balls on the count and they get a borderline pitch, Almost every single time, they just assume it's ball four. Doesn't matter if it's three zero, three one, three two. They just as soon as the as soon as the pitch comes in and it appears borderline, they they think they assume they think they're going to first base, right? They do the toss the bat, you know, throw off the throw off the armor, throw off the shin protector, all that, right? And you can't the the one thing that major league umpires and I guess umpires in general. The one thing they hate the most is getting shown up. And chances are, if that happens and it's a borderline pitch, they'll just reverse it because the umpire doesn't want the player to dictate the game, right? They don't want the player to to think that they know more the, than the umpire or something, right? And it happens so many times where, you, where you'd see angel players, angel batters, when it's a three-in-one count, right? And it's a borderline pitch comes in, throw the bat, and then... You know, take off, take out the shin guard, right? And then all, as soon as they throw the bat away, then the umpire will call it a strike. And the umpire is probably going to call it a ball. But as soon as they see that, oh, the player wants to wants to tell me how to do my job, then I'm going to do the opposite. And it happens in baseball. It's not just the Angels. There was a great example last year uh, with uh, Sean Manaya, right, pitcher for the Padres. Now um, he was pitching in Oakland, right, last year. And I can't remember who it was against, but he threw, it was two strikes, and he should have thrown strike three. It was a pretty evident that it was strike three. And the catcher uh, for Oakland, I think, yeah, I think it was Jan Gomes. So he catches the ball, right? Great frame. It's in the strike zone. It looks like it's in the strike zone. And then as soon as he catches the ball and the hitter doesn't swing, right? Hitter just lets it go, and it's a two-strike count. As soon as Jan Gomes catches the ball, he stands up because he thinks, oh, it's strike three, right? And then, <laughs> I swear... When he, as soon as he stands up, then the umpire says it's a ball. So kind of things like that. I did notice that um, the Angels kind of corrected that a little bit more in the Houston series. But I guarantee you if they stopped doing that as much, if they waited for the umpire to make the call, they'll probably get a ball for it. They'll probably get ball four or a ball call instead of a borderline strike. So that's the little thing about the uh, umpiring. Oh, and then also... I don't really want to get spend too much time on this, but uh, in game one, yeah, that ball definitely didn't hit Jose Siri's hand. And I don't know how that didn't get overturned. To me, that's been like the one egregious umpiring error against the Angels. Everything else is kind of just toss it up as as like bad umpiring and there isn't like a set agenda or something like that. No, the umps aren't out there to get the Angels. I highly doubt that. If anything, MLB should try to get the Angels in the playoffs, but that's a different conversation. But... I mean, Lorenzen, not the best start. He was losing his balance on the Houston mound. Uh, that was kind of curious. I didn't really think, I don't really think any other pitchers had that problem in the series, but uh, Lorenzen was just losing his balance a little bit on the mound, and it really affected his location. I mean, he was wild. He was throwing his, fa- he was throwing his fastball all over the place, and 
I'm not really sold. It's kind of a common thing, the common theme with the angels. Jeez, it's hard to talk sometimes, right? But I'm not too concerned about the rotation in terms of their swing and miss stuff or their velocity and all of that. It's more so their longevity, right? How long can these guys go in games? Because in every start, every start except for Shohei Otani, the starting pitches just didn't go that long. And so, you know, can can Lorenzen Suarez and Patrick Sandoval can they and uh, Reed Detmers as well? Can they bring you quality five innings minimum every single night? And maybe it doesn't have to be quality, but can they just go five innings every night just so you can get the bullpen a break? Because I think you can safely assume that Thor and Otani are going to be lights out and they'll probably at least go five innings. But it's baseball, right? You never know. But that's just my thing about the rotation is that I'm a little concerned about the longevity, but I'm not too concerned about the actual pitching side of it, if that makes sense. Tyler Wade he started going out of tear in game one, had an amazing RBI double, and uh, Max Stassi had an opposite field home run, but the Angels, they unfortunately, they dropped that Houston game 8-3. to three. And then also, they did not have Anthony, yeah, they didn't have Anthony Rendon or Mike Trout in this game, so you kind of just chalk, chalk this one up as a loss. Like, as soon as Joran Alvarez hit that tank in the bottom of the first inning, I just kind of assumed, it was like, oh, yeah, the game's over, <laughs> Houston's going to win. And um, for all these Houston games in this series, it's kind of been a weird time for me. So I live in Utah right now. I don't live in uh, Southern California, Orange County anymore. And so I'm on the mountain time zone. And just the, I don't know, the games in Houston on a weekday, it was just kind of weird timing. So I didn't really, I didn't get to sit down and watch like every single pitch of every single game. But going into game two, Angels win seven to two. Uh, Oliver Ortega got the win. And I kind of, I was kind of skeptical of him coming into the season, but he's pitched really great. He's a nice fastball, nice curveball. Yeah. Not saying he's a hidden gem yet, but, I mean, he's doing pretty good this year. And so we talked about how Tyler Wade started breaking out in, the, in this series, but I think the real breakout performer in this series and an unexpected hero for the Angels. How about Kurt Suzuki? I mean, hey, you know what? We have clowned on Kurt Suzuki as Angels fans for a couple of years now, and right, rightfully so. I mean, last year, he was a disaster. Couldn't hit, can't catch. And this year, you know, say what you will write about his defense, which it's, it's, not, it's not better. But his framing is actually not terrible, right? Like, it looked, I always thought that last year, his, when he was catching the ball, it looked like he was catching a medicine ball. Because as soon as the ball would go into his glove, he would just, like, you just like do this weird downward motion like the ball weighed like 20 pounds or something but he's he's trying to frame and he hey he framed up uh, Kyle Tucker I don't know how he did it but he framed up Kyle Tucker in this game and then he went one for three with two walks so showing off that plate discipline and an R and an RBI double two runs like hey Kurt Suzuki give it up he I think he won them that second game to be totally honest because Angels jumped out jumped out first uh so Kurt Zuki gets a walk and then he goes all the way around the third. Uh, Brandon Marsh hits a sack fly to Brantley and I don't know I don't know exactly how this happened, but uh Elizabeth Diaz couldn't scoop up the ball at second on the throw to second base and I mean he, he should have been out. I think that was uh I think that was Adele. I think Adele should have been out on that play, but just got a lucky break for the Angels and they were able to score and 
sent Kurt Suzuki home, which I don't understand really uh, with the Angels because they're guys. Now, this lineup does have a lot of speed, right? You have uh, Wade is really fast, Velasquez, Adele, Marsh, Trout, Otani. You know, those, those are some fast players, but there are some players like Kurt Suzuki or Walsh, Rendon, guys that you shouldn't be sending in on a pop-up with one out to left field, especially the left field in Minute Maid Park when it's only, I don't know, it feels like a Little League park, right, as far as just the distance. But they got lucky, and Kurt Suzuki scored, and uh, they took a one-run lead. Brant, or not Brantley, uh, Bregman, tie, Bregman ties it up, like, in the next in the next uh, half inning, and... It was, it was just, or not in the next half inning, it was the next inning, it was in the bottom of the third. But that's another common theme, right? The Angels, they take, they take a lead, they get some runs, and then they give them up like right back in the next inning or something like that. And while they showed a lot more resiliency in this game, I still think that's a big mental problem. But So we talked talked about Kurt Suzuki, but Joe Adele as well. And a lot of his hits were with two strikes. I mean, his his approach at the plate and i guess for the the overall angels approach at the plate this year they're seeing more pitches and they're being a little bit more not a little bit more a lot more patient at the plate and i think it's doing it's doing well for their hitting i mean you look at their offensive numbers this year and it's through the roof so far i think a large approach to that has been their hitting approach and it's just way more patient right you're seeing more walks you're seeing more deep counts and that's what the angels have needed to do because you can't just rely on Mike Trout and Otani and maybe Jerry Walsh to hit a home run every game. Because it's just, it's baseball. It's not going to happen. So shout out to Joe Adele at 3 for 5 with a double and RBI. And yeah, I think all those three hits were, were on uh, two strikes. And yeah, it was just a great game. Especially considering, right, we didn't have Mike Trout. Uh, Jack Mayfield again. He has been, he's been a solid pickup. I was very skeptical on Jack Mayfield and bringing back Matt, or bringing back Jack Mayfield and bringing in Matt Duffy, but they have been really solid uh, bench contributors, especially stepping in when Fletch has been out or then when Rendon has some missed games here and there. But and then if you have a, a lefty on the mound, then you put Mayfield or Duffy in. They've been solid contributors off the bench, and I'm really liking the depth on this team. Not to mention you still have Adele. Uh, Brandon Marsh and Taylor Ward behind Mike Trout in the outfield. So I'm liking the depth of this team. The offense, I mean, it's been humming right now. It doesn't have all the answers yet, but the offense has been uh, one of the bright spots of the season so far. And um, I, I just really, really liked the Angels hitting approach. Like this, especially in the second game, it felt, oh geez, I hate to say it. It felt like 2002 in a sense. Where they weren't hitting home runs, right? They didn't have they didn't have a home run in this game, and they just kept doing the small ball, right? It was singles night in Houston. You just get back to back to back to back singles, maybe a double in there or something, draw a walk, just anything to keep the inning going, right? You don't need to hit a home run if you just get guys on base. Hey, there's a chance you could bring them in, and it's baseball, right? You never know. And so I just thought that the role players right, really stepped up, right? As I said, Duffy, Mayfield, um, I guess Joe Adele, right? Because he's in a platoon. You can consider him a role player as well. Kurt Suzuki. And just a great offensive performance. And shows what this lineup can do. It can be diverse. You, ju you don't just need to have the Trout and Otani home runs. If you can get the rest of the role players going and just hitting singles all over the place, I mean, this offense is scary. They can score seven runs without Mike Trout. Like, just think of... 
think about if think about if Otani hit a home run in this game, or if Mike Trout was playing. It might have been a tended to uh, ball game. You never know. But with uh, Patrick Sandoval starting off in the second game, so he had four innings pitched, uh, five strikeouts, four hits, no earned runs. Uh, they did have they did have the one. Yeah, he gave it the one run, but it wasn't it was an unearned run. And with Sandoval, it's kind of been a common theme with uh, him and Reed Detmers have had really wild fastballs. They just can't locate with the fastball so far. And I think that's just probably just a product of uh, spring training. But, I mean, everything else is Sandoval throws, right? The changeup, the slider, it's, it's disgusting. That changeup is freaking nasty. And I think he just needs to trust his secondary pitches and throw those more. But if he can eventually figure out his fastball location, I mean – Everybody saw what Sandoval did towards the end of last year. And I think he could keep it up. He just needs to find the fastball location. And same thing with Reed Detmers. Their secondary stuff is amazing. And to me, it's like, okay, if you could just work on the fastball accuracy, which in my opinion, this is just my opinion, I think that fastball accuracy is probably easier to work on than trying to develop another pitch or trying to develop more break on your breaking ball, and your slider, your curveball, right? And so I think Sandoval, if he just cuts down on the walks, if he just cuts down on getting into these deep counts because his fastball is really wild, then he can go six innings, you know, pretty, pretty, pretty normally. And another thing too with Sandoval is that he got out of a lot of jams, right? I mean, he only he only gave up the one run and it was not a run, but he was in a lot of jams. He got out of them all. Um, I think too, he's extra animated going up against Houston Astros, right? They got him for Martin Maldonado in that trade. And I think that he was just extra motivated with it being in Minute Maid Park as well because he, that that would be the stadium that he would be pitching in right now if they didn't trade him away. And so I think if he can just rein, rein in his emotions just a little bit, that might have been another reason why his fastball was all over the place. If he can just rein in the emotions just a little bit, uh, I think you know he can be successful and do wonders for the staff, just needs to stay healthy. And the last thing I want to get to about Sandoval was he was using the pitch comp. Now this was the first, this is the first time that I've seen a Angels pitcher use a pitch comm this year, and he was having a hard time with it. Like he, he was really taking extra time off in the mound, trying to close his other ear so he could hear the calls in the pitch comm that Kurt Suzuki was putting in. And while the Houston crowd is loud, I mean, just think about it. If this was a playoff game and you're having issues trying to hear the pitch comm in a regular season game, I don't know. Maybe I think you might have to drop it if. It's an issue if you can't hear the pitching calls exactly just for whatever reason, if it's a personal preference, I think you should just drop it. So maybe Sandoval drops the pitch calm and then he can get more confidence in his pitch selection. But that was just one thing that I noticed and maybe another thing that was just kind of weighing in on his mind was, you know, with also the uh, circumstances with uh, him pitching back in Houston. So then we're going to go on to the next game and the last game, the third game. Angels win 6 nothing. And who else? Shohei Otani. Or Shohei Gotani. Because this was, this was for me, his greatest pitching performance in the majors so far. Which he's had a few just purely dominant pitching performances in the majors so far. And it's a little bit of a small sample size. But when you consider the lineup, and then when you consider that he was pitching at Minute Maid Park, which left field is... A left field is a little league park. That's all I'm going to say about it. But even with no Jose Altuve in the Astros lineup, I mean, they still had 
Alvarez, Bregman, Tucker, Gurriel, Brantley. I mean, that lineup is still so stacked. And to hold them hold them perfect for, what was it, like five, five and a third? And he finished with six innings pitched, one hit allowed, one walk, 12 strikeouts in a lineup that does not strike out a lot. I mean, it was just absurd. His, his slider and his splitter, I, that's definitely... You can't argue that, that that's the best his breaking ball has moved all season. He's locating the fastball in a tight strike zone as well, getting the right calls, and just, I mean, you look at Pitching Ninja, right, and it's just sword after sword after sword in this game. And Otani is really taking, uh, in the last couple of years, he's been taking the, the steps he's needed to take as far as pitching, right? Originally, last year, he was really wild with the fastball, and then he would kind of settle down. But this year, I mean, he's finding the zone, his breaking balls are still just as nasty. I don't think he was using spider attack because his slider and splitter still move like they did before they banned the sticky stuff. And just his competitive nature on the mound. Like you, when you see him getting a big strikeout, he slaps the glove, right? And you see that emotion come out. And I really think that that's, that's something the Angels have lacked in a long time. It's just having an alpha dog in the starting rotation, right? Thor brings that. Otani isn't necessarily an alpha dog, but just when you see that reaction, you see that fire of him, and you see that he cares, that's huge for the rest of the team. And that's something that I think the Angels really need, and it's something that I think that this team brings this year. There's just a little bit more fire. Again, it's early. I'm not going to be saying ridiculous stuff yet, but it's early. Um, so... They got pretty much got no no they did this they got all the runs in the first inning and it was a weird weird strange first inning. Shohei Otani becomes the first uh, batter to have two plate appearances before he even throws the throws his first pitch, which I was thinking yeah that has to be some kind of a record right. Um, so Jake Odorizzi was just an absolute dumpster fire this game, walking everybody, not finding the strike zone. He was getting squeezed as well, but I think I think it kind of goes into the. Uh, Go to the discussion I was talking about with the umpiring, though, is that the more you complain, the less the less benefit of the doubt you're going to get, right? If you throw a borderline pitch and you've been telling the ump, oh, you suck, or hey, you should have called that, they'll just call the opposite at that point. They're not going to want to hear it from you. And it's you can't blame the umpire. It's just a normal human reaction. But it was, it was really funny, though, seeing him walk in runs because the Angels have done that a couple times this year. And so... Seeing seeing another team walk in a run against the or walk in a run for the Angels that was pretty awesome. So then Otani scores, Taylor Ward third, Jerry Walsh the second, and just from there, right? Just the fact that Odorizzi couldn't locate. I mean, it was it was all she wrote at that point. Brandon Marsh had RBI single. Andrew Velasquez. I mean, his defense has been amazing, but he shows off the speed as well. Right, he hits a, he hits a little chopper, and then he just totally beats out the throw. Everybody's safe. Houston has no idea what's going on. And then Otani comes up, and I don't know how he didn't hit a home run in his second plate appearance of the first inning. But he hit a he hit a towering shot that was eventually off the left field wall. I thought that was going to be a home run. Um, but it went off the wall, and then he got a couple more runs in. And then that's how it was 6 nothing. And at that point, you can kind of just exhale and say, okay, I think Otani is locked in. And, and seeing him just dominate on the mound with a dirty uniform was freaking awesome. And uh, there was a really great article that I saw. It was it was from Fangraphs, and it was talking about how Otani took a lot of the a lot of like the next level steps in becoming a great hitter last year. 
and how this year he's taking the next level steps to become an even better pitcher in the majors. Which I always thought that when he came, or even before Otani came to the majors, I always thought that he would be eventually become a pitcher. Just a, a pitcher only, right? A PO. Uh, I didn't know if the hitting would translate and because typically, right, I mean, look at the track record with a lot of the Asian players that come that come to the majors. Most of them are pitchers, and the ones most of the ones that are successful are usually pitchers, right? You think of somebody like Nomo or Chan Ho Park, Chin Ming Wong, or uh, Darvish, right? Most of the success has been pitchers. There's few position players, right? It's re- at this point, it's really just uh, Ichiro, uh, Matsui, and that's really that's really it right Hassan Kim hasn't done much there's been a lot of Japanese uh, position players that have flamed out in the majors but I mean hey unless so far you're saying Suzuki but we'll see about that um but just if you look just looking at his velocity it's increased from last year pretty substantially so again it's early but forcing fastball velocity last year it was 90 average velocity was 95.6 this year it's 97.5 I mean do you it's hard to imagine, but a two-mile-per-hour difference on your fastball, that's pretty insane. Uh, same thing with the slider. Uh, last year was 82.2 average velocity. This year, it's 84.8. I mean, you're almost getting a three miles an hour, miles an hour faster. Splitter, last year was 88.2 average velocity. This year, it's 90.1. Curveball, even the curveball, even. Last year, uh, average velocity was... 74.7 and this year it's 78.9 so he's almost throwing his curveball at 80 miles an hour here and then the cutter he hasn't thrown too many cutters this year but last year was at 86.9 average velocity and this year the average velocity for the cutter is 90.6 and the cutter is really the pitch i felt last year that really unlocked his true potential on the mound because now you have something in between uh, the fastball and the slider in terms of the velocity in terms of the movement and just that little bit of hesitation, uh, that's key on the mound. And I i mean, just Shohei Otani, what, what else can you say about how dominant he, he was on the mound? And he's been hes been a solid pitcher this year. He's been very good. He just left a couple pitches up. I mean, Jeremy, you know, was it Jeremy Pena? I can't remember. No, it wasn't Pena who hit the home run off of the splitter. It was that it was that backup catcher in Texas whose name, whose name forget... Uh, I can't remember, but right, just like little fluke things like that have kind of made his ERA and stuff inflate a little bit. But you, he just looks so much more comfortable on the mound than he did when he first came into the majors. And he's throwing everything harder. The spin rates are up, and yeah, I mean, he just he's Shohei Otani, right? That's why he's the unanimous uh, AL MVP. He just carried the team in that third game, and that's how they took two out of three from Houston. And just looking ahead at the uh, series coming up, so the Angels, they go home, and they play a three-game series starting today on Friday uh, against the Orioles and then against the Cleveland Guardians, a four-game series. And the Angels have historically lately been terrible against the Guardians. So they have seven home games coming up for the end of April. And if they can win, they could just win four of these games. doesn't matter who it's against. If they could just take four out of seven out of these home games, I think it's a I think it's a fantastic April and a great start for the Angels. I'm not gonna stand I'm not gonna look at the standings just yet. I'm not gonna acknowledge that it's still very early, right? April's not even over even when these when the series ends. But I you know, the Angels have surprised me this year so far. 
I think they still had a lot of the mental lapses and a lot of like the issues, especially the base running. And I think some of the issues they've had with umpires that take them out of the game, as well as Joe Madden's interesting decisions. But I think, though, that they're taking the right steps forward. Now, I didn't predict they'd be a playoff team. I said they'd be about around 500, which is better than they've been the last couple of years. But you never know, right? It's baseball. She's got a lot of baseball left, and I just want to sit back and enjoy the Angels and have something to root for in Anaheim. It's been a really long time, and there are some good vibes around this team. So at the very least, we can get behind that, and just hopefully this whole shortstop situation figures itself out. I won't go into too much detail about it now because it's just for the sake of time, but shout out to Andrew Velasquez. I mean, he's really stepped up, been an unlikely hero of sorts, and just I think this, if I could cap off this Astros series, series, it just shows the depth of the team. And that's something that we haven't had in Anaheim for a long time. So I think that's enough said about the Angels. Probably went over the uh, a lot of time I was going to give myself. But let's go into the Anaheim Ducks. All right, so I probably went a little bit too long about the Angels. But let's get into the Anaheim Ducks. And so the final home freeway faceoff in Ryan Getzloff's career was played a couple days ago. And the Ducks lost 2-1. to one. And even though they lost, I thought they played really well. It was probably probably one of the better full 60-minute uh, games that I've seen them play in a long time. And really, if anything, Jonathan Quick is the reason why the Kings won the game. No surprise. I mean, I was joking that it's 2022, but it felt like 2012 because this is the way Jonathan Quick was playing. I mean, he just robbed so many great scoring chances the Ducks were pulling off, especially in the power play as well. But, you know, let's get into This was a really interesting game. So, as expected with freeway face-off games, especially the ones that are played at Honda Center, I got to get this off my chest. More Kings fans than Ducks fans. I mean, I understand that the Ducks aren't going to make the playoffs. I understand that the Kings are a playoff team and they're good right now and the Ducks are terrible. But, really, you couldn't, Ducks fans, you couldn't pay out the money or go to the Honda Center to see Ryan Getzloff and his second-to-last career home game like that that was pretty pathetic and uh, ducks attendance has been something that i've really really griped on for a long time and i probably am a little overboard on it but i just wish that the fan support was there which i guess i'm a hypocrite right living in living in utah and not really going out to games i mean i i do drive to arizona every now and then to see them play but i just wish that we just had a little bit more fan support but Anyways, let's get into the actual game. So, uh, none of the, none of those goals were our Gibson's fault. Uh, the one, the game winner, which Philip Dano scored. How does Philip Dano have 24, 24 goals? Like, let's just that let that sink in for a minute. But Arvidsson, you know, right? He crashes, he crashes the net, um, but it has a shot, and then he just kind of like slides into Gibson a little bit. Uh, he hits him, but he's not really. He's not really taking him out of the play, in my opinion. I think that Gibson still had enough time to get over to the other, get over to the side and try to, try to make a save on the Dano rebound. But he just Dano collected the rebound, put it past uh, sprawling out Gibson. It was immediately ruled goalie interference, um, and then it was waved off, and the, it was allowed a good goal, which gave the Kings a two-one lead. And I don't know how I feel about that goalie interference call. Because like I kind of want to agree with the call on the ice, but at the same time, I don't think that it like totally was a missed call. Like I don't think that the refs got it totally wrong when they said that it was a good goal. 
So I think for me, it's just one of those 50-50 coin flip things on goalie interference, which that's a whole nother conversation. And goalie interference is still, to this day, a hot topic in the league. But, I mean, that call could have went either way. Was I really upset that they that they counted the goal? I mean, of course I was in the heat of the moment. But I could see why the goal counted. But I could also argue why the goal shouldn't have counted. So, I don't know. It's, it wasn't a big deal. I mean, I didn't really expect the Ducks to win this game. But that's how they lost. And it's really no hard feelings right there. I mean, the Kings are definitely a better team. But it was just really nice, finally, to see the Ducks put another team on their heels. It's been a long time since they've had one of those games like they were playing in October through late November, right, where they were just attack, attack, attack. The power play was working great, and they were just really putting the pressure on the other team, and I think the Kings were a little surprised by that. And uh, I think they still had a little uh, too many uh, too many just pointless shots from the – or too many uh, worthless shots from the point that don't really – they're like empty calories, right? They don't really give you much. And I think you need to have more shots of the power play from the danger areas, like, you know, right around the faceoff dots or – or in the slot or something like that, but I don't know. I, I did like the power play, and it did remind me of the early season. Uh, Adam Henrique had the only goal for the Ducks. He just drove the net, and he was the only one to elevate tight end on Jonathan Quick. Uh, I don't know what it is with Quick, and Quick is an amazing goalie, but the Ducks just don't know how to elevate the puck in the crease whenever they play Jonathan Quick. For whatever reason, they just they just don't know how to. And Henrique was the only one to do that. Um, Really just going hard to the net, crashing the net. Uh, nice backhand goal. Then he took out quick and took out the goal as well. But a uh, huge shout-out to Adam Henrique. He's had he's quietly had a very great season in Anaheim this year. Uh, 54 games played, so he missed like about a month with injuries. 18 goals, 21 assists for 39 points. And check this out. His plus-minus is plus-2. Now, I, I'm not the biggest fan of plus-minus stats, but unless you can really like back it up or there's like some outlier or things like that, I think it's relevant. And especially with how bad this Ducks team has been this year, and while Henrique hasn't played in every single game, just the fact that he's played over 50 games and he has a positive plus-minus, hey, that just shows... Uh, I think, I think that that's a relevant stat right there, instead of plus-minus being useless like it is most of the time. But Henrique has played center this year. He's played left wing. He's played everywhere. He's wearing an A. And I know some people were saying that, oh, maybe Adam Henrique's trade value is going up or they should get rid of him. But I don't think they should. I really, especially with Ryan Gesloff retiring, I think they should keep and hold on to Adam Henrique as much as possible because you need that veteran leadership in the room, right? Cam Fowler's not really the most vocal guy. And I don't think Henrique is the most vocal leader as well. I don't think Silverberg is as well. But while you have these veterans on your team that really can't give you much in trade value, because at the end of the day, I mean, what can Henrique really give the Ducks, right? He's not going to be giving them a first or second round or, like, or a top prospect. You need to keep the leadership around, right? Silverberg isn't going to net them anything in a trade if he plays again, right? And I think that you need to have just voice of leadership with, with this team. You can't just give the keys to Camp Fowler and not have any veterans on the team. Uh, if you look at, again, I want to mention the oil change, right? The Edmonton Oilers, remember from the Taylor Hall, Nugent Hopkins, Everly days? That team really didn't have that many veterans. It had, what, Ryan Smith for a couple of years, and then it was Horkoff, and um, who was the cat? Oh, uh, Andrew Ferentz, and um, who was the guy with the, uh, with the tinted visor? Uh, uh, Alex Hemsky, right? Like they had three veterans on the team. Oh, and they also had um, 
Oh, who was the goalie? I can't remember. Oh, Cavi Bullen, right, the Bullen wall. Like, they had a few veterans on the team, but they didn't have a whole lot. And it's like when you just throw these young guys into the Wolves when they're 20, 21 years old, right? I mean, it's hard. You need that calming voice in the locker room. Or you need that veteran presence in practice, in the middle of the games, that can really just set the tone for the rest of the team. And if you're not going to – and if Ryan Getzloff, right, won't be on the team next year, he's retiring, I think that you need to hold on to these veterans as much as, you, as, much as possible. They had a great trade deadline in getting rid of uh, – getting a lot of great assets in return from Josh Manson, Raquel, Lindholm, Nick Delorier. But I think that they should just hold on to Henrique – Silverberg and well obviously Camp Fowler they're not he's not going anywhere but I think Henrik and Silverberg really should stay on the Ducks as long as possible at Derek Grant even until his contract runs out because I, I think that you can't just you can't just get rid of the leadership right especially with Getzloff going out you need to have leadership in the room and um, there has been some talk about the captaincy and I want to touch on that a little bit where Troy Terry said that they probably won't be rolling out with a captain. They'll probably just have three alternates next year. And that's fine. I mean, really, nowadays, at the end of the day, the captaincy is really just a letter at this point. You're going to have your locker room leaders, your veteran presence presence in the room. And at this point, the letter is just, it's just a letter, right? They just sew it on the jersey. Unless you're a Getzloff or you're like a Sidney uh, Crosby or Taves. Uh, Stamkos, right, like the OV, those big faces, Jamie Ben that have been around with that team forever and ever, then I think it starts to become a big thing. But, I mean, just because you just because you don't have a letter, just because you do have a letter, doesn't mean that you can't be a leader or, you, or that you are automatically a leader, right? And especially if I don't think they don't, have too, they don't have too many vocal leaders on the team, at least to my knowledge, just what, from what I casually observe as a fan. I think that it's a great move going with three alternates because unfortunately whoever wears the next C is going to be compared unfairly to Ryan Getzloff and he was a phenomenal captain I don't know how many people you know I just if you want to dispute that with me uh, you can have a conversation with me and we'll talk about that but it, it'll be hard to replace that leadership void a uh, void and so I think with the three alternates it'll probably be something like uh, Fowler obviously Henrik and uh, Silverberg. I, I, um, unless they add in, like, you know, bring in some more veterans in free agency or maybe even in a trade, I think that'll probably be the three guys they go with. And then usually what the Ducks have also done is they rotate the alternates on the road and at home. And that just kind of, again, plays into the argument I was saying where the letter doesn't really matter sometimes. And so maybe you'll see, like, uh, Derek Grant wear an A or... Troy Terry, right? We're an A. And so it really doesn't matter. I just, I do agree though that I don't think there should be a set in captain. I mean, it probably will be Cam Fowler down the road, and I think that's a great choice and kind of the obvious choice, but it, it really doesn't matter. I just don't want that person to have to feel like they have an added burden or added, added pressure on them to continue uh, the legacy of Ryan Getzloff, the greatest captain and the greatest player in Anaheim Ducks history. And so it is coming up. It is coming up pretty soon. The final game of Ryan Getzloff's career. So we have uh, Ducks play at Staples Center or at Crypto.com Arena. Good God. They play there on Saturday at 7.30 p.m. against 7.30 p.m. Pacific time against the Kings. And then Sunday, May 24th uh, at 5.30 
against the St. Louis Blues will be Ryan Getzloff's last game. And yes, it is his last game. He will not be playing in the uh, two remaining road games in San Jose and Dallas. Once that once that game against St. Louis is over, his career is over. And so I know I harped on the Ducks fans before, but please, please, please go to that game. Um, give Getzloff the exit that he deserves. He's given us countless amazing memories. I think in the next episode, I want to do a top 15 Ryan Getzloff moments just to honor the captain, the greatest uh, player in Ducks franchise history. And yeah, it's crazy that the career of Ryan Getzloff is coming down to the end. And again, it still doesn't feel real. And just thank you again, Ryan Getzloff. I know every single Ducks Ducks segment of this podcast until he retires right it's just thanking Ryan Getzloff for everything he's done my favorite player my favorite Ducks player of all time and it'll just be weird weird not seeing him anymore in Anaheim or playing for Anaheim I think he'll I think he'll land a front office role probably kind of something like what that team who does but yep that's all I got about the Ducks and the Angels again thank you so much to everybody who's listened uh thank you everybody who's downloaded episodes thank you to everybody who's interacted with me on Twitter again you can interact with me on Twitter and the show at Catelacast show thank you so much for listening and I hope everybody has an amazing day again please listen to us on all available podcast platforms and please leave a review five stars only you can Leave a five-star review and then just roast me in the comments. I don't care as long as we get the five stars. So thank you for listening. Have a great day. Let's go, Angels, and let's go, Ducks.